0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthopechurch. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you, uh, strongly encourage you, to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Either follow along electronically or there's a Bible in the pew right in front of you. We're going to cover two chapters today, and so we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I really do want you following along with us as we work our way through this story that Andrew just read the beginning of for us. As you start, I want to just go ahead and get right to it. I want want to ask you some questions that I want you to be thinking about even now as we're getting going in our story today. Let me just go right off the top and say, what unconfessed sin are you walking in or living in right now? What sin maybe have you confessed but you're still feeling the guilt from maybe even years later? Or how about that? Is there someone that maybe has betrayed you in the past? And maybe you're still not ready to reconcile with them yet. Or maybe maybe you've hurt someone else, but you haven't sought their forgiveness. Because the reality is, it's pretty easy at times for us to think that we can hide our sin from God. We can... Uh, even if we're not feeling the impacts of it, it's easy for us to tell us, maybe, well, God forgot about it. Maybe the other person forgot about it. But your sin cannot be hidden from an all-knowing God. Or maybe for you, it's, it's you've just resigned yourself that that relationship is broken. You both kind of moved on. No big deal. What well, is a big deal if you're in Christ? That you would have any animosity between another person, specifically a brother or sister in Christ, because it doesn't speak to the gospel of Jesus, of God who came to reconcile himself to you. But the problem is reconciliation takes humility. And sometimes we, struggling, we struggle with humbling ourselves before one another. Sometimes we struggle with humbling ourselves before God himself. So as we think about that today, I want us to just to catch us up really quickly on our story. If you've been with us, you know we've been working through the book of Genesis. Specifically since we started back in January, we've been picking up the story of Joseph. We'll be dealing with Joseph and his brothers for the rest of the book of Genesis. But you remember that Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh is greater than Joseph. And God has been with him and has been blessing him even through several trials Years of trials. But the problem is, as great as it is that Joseph has risen to this wonderful place, second in command, God's doing wonderful things, there's this giant hole in the story of God's people. Because yes, you have Joseph over here and God is blessing, but you have the rest of Joseph's family back in Canaan. Not reconciled together, not one people, not the people of God. And so while we won't finish our story of reconciliation today and our story, we're going to get started on it and we're going to get a long ways into it between Joseph and his family. But as we start this morning, I'll be honest, I I love to ask questions of the Bible as I'm studying the Bible. I think it's a good habit for you to do as well. But I like to ask questions of God and say, God, what is is it that you're teaching me here, right? What, What am I supposed to learn about who you are? But sometimes I just ask really basic questions. Like, why is this story even here? Like, why did you choose to put this story here, right? I mean, if if forgiveness and reconciliation and fulfillment of prophecy and, and, and God providing for his people, if all of that's going to happen anyway, then why do we have these chapters in the Bible? Why all this drama? What are we to learn about you, God? What are we to learn about ourselves in our life situations? What's here that we need to know? And I think part of... The reason this story is here is to teach us that reconciliation requires an admittance of guilt. That it requires genuine heart change, not just words that are spoken. And so this morning, if I could boil down these two chapters and what it is that we can see is the thread running through it. I want you to see that God is working. That God is working to purify the hearts of Jacob and the twelve brothers so that they may be reconciled to one another and be saved. You see, Jacob and the ten brothers weren't ready to be reconciled. Jacob needed to be brought to a place of desperation before he would fully trust in God and God's plan. And the brothers, you'll see in just a little bit, seem to have never dealt with their sin, their sins against Joseph, but also their sins of lying to their father for all of these years. But I would argue that Joseph, too, is not quite ready to be reconciled. While he would remain faithful to the Lord, we see that, right? We've seen that throughout these stories. He's remained faithful. It doesn't mean that there's still not work that needs to be done on his heart. So it's maybe in these moments as we're going to study and we're going to see where he becomes overwhelmed with his emotion, we're going to see that it is still where he is working out, trusting in God's goodness. And the reason I think that is, Pastor Cody told us last week in the naming of his first son to means to forget and he explained it that he is able to forget his family. Doesn't sound like a brother who has dealt with all of the hurt yet. But I think too it's interesting he is the second in all the command of Egypt. Egypt is the world power of that region and I don't ever read anywhere in his Bible where he went on Pharaoh's door and asked for any PTO to go back to Can- Canaan and see and check on his family. I think he was okay with the fact that they were living in two separate places. So I believe Jacob, these ten brothers, and Joseph, all, all of these actors, they needed God's spirit at work, which brings me to our main takeaway for today. God's spirit convicts of sin so that those who are his will repent and receive extravagant blessings. God convicts those who are his repent and receive blessing. You see, God's design, when he made a people for himself, as we've been looking at in the book of Genesis, God's design for your life was one of peace. But we don't experience peace when we aren't first reconciled to God. And then we aren't reconciled to those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So why is this story in our Bible? Why couldn't Joseph have just simply, when they first came, and just said, hey, it's me, Joseph, and everything be all great? Because I think they needed to see and we need to see that true reconciliation proceeds only from genuine heart change. Genuine heart change. In order to have genuine heart change that brings reconciliation, we're going to see from our story that we must recognize, we must confess, we must repent, we must receive, and we must experience. So in chapter 42, we're going to see, we're going to recognize God-given guilt and our confession of our, sin, our transgressions here. Andrew just read these first four verses for you, but I want you to follow along in your Bibles in chapter 42, because at the end of the last chapter, we saw that the famine was great. It wasn't great just in Egypt. It was great in all of the surrounding regions. So Moses has shifted our focus from Egypt temporarily back to Canaan. And as our story begins, it begins with a word of frustration from the brother's father, Jacob, to these remaining sons. Can't you just picture it? Why are y'all just standing around doing nothing while we're going to die? Right? You can picture his frustration. Seems a little bit dramatic. Yeah. But I think that's also meant to help us understand a couple of things. One, the situation in Canaan really is dire. Right, there were seven years of plenty in Egypt, and now seven years of famine, and the famine's affecting the whole region. We don't know how far, yes, necessarily we're in, but it's enough that the family is experiencing a dire situation. It's severe. And so what sounds a little like dr- drama from Jacob, I think, is meant to convey a serious situation. But secondly, though, I think we still see here a man who is supposed to be leading his family with all of the confidence of the Lord. Right, he's the grandson of the one who received the promise of God that God is going to bless his family and bless the whole world through his family, and yet we see him leading and acting. I wouldn't say leading, I guess. Acting as one who is with no regard to God and his providence. Now look, it's important for us to understand. If, even if you're in Christ, we are going to walk through trials and tribulations. God's people are going to face troubles just like the world around us This favored family of God had not been exempted from the difficulties of the people around them. You see, we have no promise of uh, of ease, of unconditional ease throughout our life. We have no promise of that. Just as we all experience common grace, there's a common brokenness that we all experience as well. And so here in this moment, Jacob's family experienced the trial that the whole region was. And even though we're going to see in those difficulties, they can be for our good. We may have noticed in verse 4 that Jacob sends 10 of his sons back to Egypt. He didn't send Benjamin. It says because they feared that harm might come to him. Now what we see here before we move on is we see Jacob presented really as the man he's been for a while. The same man he was before. Years early, Joseph as a teenager, Jacob had coated him with this amazing coat that was supposed to signal to everybody else around him that Joseph was the favored son. Now, years later, with Joseph presumed dead, what do we see? Well, now Benjamin is the favorite son. All the other sons are allowed to go back to Egypt, but not Benjamin. He's the favorite. And I think there's probably some paranoia here going on from Jacob. Right? He's the last son of Rachel, uh, of Joseph's uh, mother, Joseph and Benjamin's mother. It's, the, it's, his favorite, it's his favorite wife. Again, that's even not great. But his favorite wife, it's his last son remaining of that. And don't forget, the last time he sent one of Rachel's sons out with these ten, he didn't come back. So I think there's paranoia going on here. Maybe he started to suspect something of them over the last years. I don't know. But still he favors one son. Still he can't let go and trust. And still he's scarred by his past. I think the other thing that's fascinating me as we continue to set the stage for the rest of our story is the brothers, these 10, they've gotten no relief. It was jealousy that led them to want to kill but eventually sell Joseph into slavery with the thinking that, man, if we get rid of Joseph, then maybe our father's heart and his affections will be directed back towards us. And yet now we see they've only made matters worse because he's still grieving the loss of Joseph and he has a new favorite. So it's rubbed in their faces day after day, week after week, for months and for years. It's just like that for us. So often we try to solve our problems by, by and with sin. We just make matters worse. It's exactly what these brothers have done and it's exactly now what they're experiencing and they've gotten no relief. Jacob, portrayed as the same man he was before, not leading his family well. The brothers, no relief, and now they're all experiencing a terrible natural disaster. Now the stage is set. It's set for God to act in this family in a way that they have not experienced before. And isn't it just like our God that he so often works the most beautiful of outcomes from the ugliest of situations? So as we move on in our story in verse five and following to verse eight, these 10 brothers are among those who came to Egypt. Now I don't know how many, potentially thousands of people coming to Egypt. And as they come to buy grain, I'm picturing that they're walking up to some kind of stall in which there's going to be an exchange of money for for food. And the Bible tells us that Joseph, who's in charge of the whole country, ends up being the one that they interact with. Now, is is Joseph looking out, seeing these people come from Canaan, and he's been looking for his brothers? Is it divine chance that they just happen to show up at the stall that he's at? You can call it whatever you want. But I believe it's God's providence at work to bring these two people who have no desire to be reconciled, to interact with one another, to be face-to-face with one another. Well, even though he, they, he recognized them, and the Bible tells us that they don't recognize him, and he speaks harshly to them, and he treats them kind of like everyone else, if not actually a little bit worse. I mean, again, there's 10 brothers. How many brothers does he have? He has 11. The 11's not there. The last time these brothers went out, he was sold into slavery. Maybe he's just wondering what happened to Benjamin. Maybe he's not sure if these are the same men that they were 20 years ago when they sold him into slavery. He doesn't know who these men are now, but he's going to find out. Now, it seems interesting to me, right? When we read things in the Bible like, man, they didn't recognize him. How, how do you not recognize your brother? I mean, he's your brother. I know you, know you didn't like him, and I know it's been a long time, but he's still. I mean, he would have walked in a certain way, would have acted a certain way. But again, this is God's hand at work. Don't forget, remember... Picture this. He's the second in command of all of Egypt. He's dressed like an Egyptian official. He's speaking in Egyptian. We know later he has an interpreter there. He is not who they think he is. And let's not forget, they think he's dead. So they have no idea who they've just bowed down to when they came before this Egyptian official. But verse 9 tells us why they may not have known. Joseph remembered the dreams he had back in chapter 37. Now, it's not quite the fulfillment. You'll remember it was all 11 brothers that would bow down before him. But, but right here, it's the beginning. We, we see the beginning of God fulfilling his prophecies. And so now we get this really interesting exchange in verses 9 through 14. Not only does he speak to them harshly, he accuses them of being spies. I mean, what's going on? Why? I mean, that seems pretty harsh. Is it just simply his anger at them that's causing this? I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of that there. He doesn't know the fate of Benjamin. He doesn't know if his dad is alive and well. And I think he's still not sure who these guys are. So he accuses them of spies. And now I want you to see how the brothers respond. Because Joseph is doing this, he's getting information, right? He accuses them, you're spies. And what do they say? We're brothers. All right, so they've admitted they're all one family. And he accuses him a second time, and we say, We're 12 brothers from one man, and the youngest is now with our father and home. So, okay. So, Benjamin's safe and alive and well. My dad's well. And even in the littlest way, you at least include the fact that Joseph was a part of the family, at least at some point. And then in verse 14, I think Joseph pulls out a queel phrase from the Mandalorian, and he says, I have spoken. He declares them spies again. If you don't watch Mandalorian, that wasn't funny to you. But anyway, uh, he has spoken. He has declared them as spies. He has them thrown in prison as a test. And that's what he says. We're going to test. You said you're honest men. Joseph clearly has no, desire, no reason to believe they had to be honest men. And he's going to test them. I said before, he could have just revealed himself in this moment. But I think these brothers needed this testing from the Lord. And so because of that, I believe that Joseph is acting as an agent of the Lord so that these men would confront their past sin. They would repent. They would get right with the Lord, and then the Lord could reconcile them together. Don't forget, these are the men who are the patriarchs of the faith. They're the, the fathers of the tribes that will be the tribes, the 12 tribes of Egypt or Israel. Their hearts weren't ready yet for them to grow as a people and a nation that God had planned for them. They needed this testing. So for three days Joseph throws them all in prison. Now, I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us how they spent those three days, but I do wonder. In those quiet moments, where they asking themselves, How did it come to this? Did but did the Holy Spirit start to convict them of their sin? When they answered Joseph that they were twelve brothers and one was no more, was that the first time they had thought about him, maybe in years? Maybe they had never spent time thinking what became of him. So God gives them the opportunity. His Holy Spirit's convicting him. I mean, that's what God does, doesn't he? He never lets his chosen ones run too far from him. He chases us. He pursues us. He, He will bring conviction into our lives one way or another, and it's for our good. On the third day, Joseph comes back before him. And he leads off with, I fear God. Now that phrase may not strike us very much, but it would have been shocking to them. He says, I fear Elohim. I feel your God, not the gods of Egypt. I fear your God. And this is all, not only a declaration of who Joseph is, but it's God working in these guys. They have to be thinking at this point. God is up to something. He's not only the God of the people over here in Canaan, he's the God, there's at least somebody here who fears this God here in Egypt. So Joseph, instead of keeping nine of them and sending one back, switches it around and said, I'll keep one and send nine of you back. Bring your younger brother to me, and then we'll set this one free. Now, was Joseph relenting, or did he plan this all along? Did he say, man, if I seem really harsh and I I give back a little bit, now I seem like a nicer guy? I, I don't know. It is interesting that it is setting up a scene that was very much like the scene in which he was thrown in the pit where the other brothers could sell him off and go away and leave him behind. The same scene is being set up for us. God is at work. And the reason I believe that's the case to show them their sin because look at what happens in verse 21. The translation we are reading says, obviously, I think a better translation that some of you will have, it says, in truth... Right, These are men that are declaring they're, they're honest men. And they say, in truth, we're being punished for what we did to our brother. Look, that's not a full confession. I get it. But God is forcing them to deal with what they did. He's forcing them to come face to face with their guilt. While it appeared that they got away with their sin for years, that maybe God forgot about it or overlooked it, God never overlooks evil. Even if for a while it looks like He might. Well, see what Joseph learns here in this. Remember, he's listening in. He's got an interpreter there, but he doesn't need it. So they don't know it's him that they're speaking in front of. And look what it is he learns from what happens in 21 and 22. He learns that the brothers are feeling guilty for what they did to him. He learns that they've seen the distress of his soul when they put him in the pit and then they sold him. They were conscious of his feelings in that moment. They heard his begging, his pleas to be released. And from Reuben in verse twenty-two, Joseph learns what really happened—that Reuben tried to dissuade them from selling him and harming him. And they also learned that they thought he was dead the entire time. Joseph understood what they said, even though they thought he didn't. And says he was overcome with emotion. These are the brothers who sold you. They saw your distress. They saw your hurt. They saw your pleas to be released, and they sold you anyway. They're coming face-to-face with their guilt, and Joseph's coming face-to-face with the reality of maybe feelings he has pushed down for years. So after gathering himself, he takes Simeon, that's the second born, and he binds him, and he says, he's going to be the one put in prison. You guys go back. Now, there's been a lot of people who have written of why they think it's Simeon. I don't know. I don't know if it's worth speculating But they bind Simeon in front of them, take him away, and send the brothers away. Now, as the men are over here preparing to go back, Joseph tells his servants, Hey, when you load the grain into their sacks that they paid for, put their money back in there as well. And then they go on their way, and that night when they lodge, one of the brothers goes into his bag to get some feed for the donkey. And what does he see? He sees the money. And what does it say? I mean, in verse 28, it says that their hearts sank when he told his brothers Trembling, they turned to one another. And that word trembling there is interesting. It's the same word that Moses used of Isaac when Isaac realized he had been tricked by Jacob. Trembling. They're terrified. Why are they terrified? Because they've just told this guy they're honest men. And at some point, somebody's going to do an accounting and realize that these guys effectively stole some of the grain. And their brother's sitting in prison there. Their hearts sank. Sank. But I think what's next is worse. Because who is to blame for all of this? What do they say? What has God done to us? It's God's fault we're having to do this. See, what happens here to the brothers is what happens so often when we are living in unconfessed sin. Our view of how good God is is often so clouded that all we can see him is one who judges. And so, look, as they move on away, you can picture what happens in verses 29 through 34. They get home. Their dad, Jacob, is sitting there, and they're all coming. They're telling him all that has happened. They're speaking 100 miles a minute. They're speaking over one another. They're all shouting. And all the while, Jacob is sitting back, where's Simeon? So you can picture the heartache and that feeling from 20 years before when Joseph didn't come back, those feelings creeping back in. What seems clear to Jacob, whether the money was put there by accident or whether it was put there on purpose, is that Simeon is gone. He would never see him again. At least that's what he's concluded. He's lost Joseph. Now he's lost Simeon. And there's no way, by the way, I'm sending Benjamin now for sure. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. and It's all happening to me, Jacob says. And when you are not in a place of peace with the Lord... All we can see often is the crumbling walls around us. Well, Reuben tries to step up and lead. You'll see there. He steps up and he says, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Uh, hmm. Re- Reuben's not a good leader. All right. Reuben has messed up many times. He couldn't get the brothers to not harm Joseph. Now he tries to get his father, who, uh, unpersuasively, And his offer is, why don't you kill my two sons, by the way, your two grandsons, if I don't bring Benjamin back? It's not what a leader does. Jacob is having none of it. My son, he says, not your brother, by the way, my son won't go with you. Why? Because Joseph is dead and all I have left is Benjamin. If anything happens to him, I'll just die. Man, how heart-wrenching that must have been for these other brothers. First it was Joseph, now it's Benjamin. It's though he doesn't even care about the rest of them. All the while, there's one who is alive in prison in Egypt. By the way, the land he sent them to. Look, when we come to the end of chapter 42, if you haven't read ahead, if you haven't read this story before, the situation is quite bleak. Joseph's alive, but they don't know it. and He doesn't seem to want to reconcile, at least not fully. He does want to see his little brother, but that's all we know so far. The brothers are feeling the full weight of the guilt of their sin against him. But there is no relief. There's no resolve. And their father is unwilling to trust these nine brothers and willing to let one stay in Egypt. And as bleak as it is, I actually see hope in this chapter. God told Abraham way back in chapter 15, if you remember, That his descendants would be aliens in another country for 400 years. And after that, God would deliver them mightily. Well, right now, there's only two sons in Egypt. Which, by the way, is actually good because there's only one when we started. Now there's two. There's still a lot more to go. So I see hope that God is fulfilling what he said he would do. But I also see hope in this chapter because without the conviction of sin, there cannot be repentance. And without repentance, there can be no reconciliation. So what the brothers felt in verse 21 is God-given guilt. He didn't leave them in their sin without doing something about it. The Holy Spirit, his spirit, working through Joseph, working through their circumstances, was penetrating the hearts of these men. So after 20 years, they would come face to face with their sin. And God's goal wasn't just so they would intellectually know and understand their sin, but that they would feel it deep in their soul. And so at the end of chapter 42, what we actually have is these brothers ready to be on the road to reconciliation. Their hearts to be purified to God. them reconciled to their brother. God has allowed them to see the full weight of their sin. And it brought them to the point where they admitted their wrongdoing to one another. So now let's see how conviction of sin leads to undeserved mercy. Look at chapter 43. Well, the famine has continued, of course. Seems like Jacob thought maybe it would just all go away. It's continued. And, and Jacob seems fine to let Simeon languish in prison. But at some point, ultimately, his hand is forced because they're running out of food. And he's got to send his sons back to Egypt. Of course, Judah steps up and reminds his father we can't go back without Benjamin. And Jacob, in response to Judah's reminder, is, is frustration Why did you even tell him you had another brother? What have you done to me? And the sons kind of raise their hand and go, uh, we were being interrogated for being spies in Egypt. So lying in this moment would not have been wise. But now in verse 8, we see what we started to see a a few chapters ago. We see Judah stepping up. In this case, to lead his family. Reuben has failed to lead multiple times through his sin back in Genesis 35, through them not harming his brother, now back in 42 where he offers his own kids as sacrifice. No, no, this family needed a new leader. One that God would use to not only reconcile this family, but through whom the great King David would come and reconcile and bring peace to God's people, but even more through whom the Savior King would come and bring reconciliation of the entire world to God. That's the kind of leader Judah is stepping up to become. And notice the difference between their request to take Benjamin. We're going to see this tested actually next week in our text. But for today's point, what we need to see is instead of offering somebody else for Benjamin, he offers himself. He's moved from simple remorse that we see in chapter 42 to all in repentance. Repentance means I've changed who I am. I'm different. Where he was happy to sell his brother back in 37. In fact, it was his idea. Now we see him instead put himself in his brother's place if needed. The man who once was happy to use people for his own good, whether it was Joseph for money or whether it was Tamar for himself, now is a man who is ready to put himself in harm's way. And maybe even their father had noticed the difference. I don't know, because he consents to letting Benjamin go with the brothers back to Egypt. But then he comes up with this plan. Okay, guys, take twice as much as we did before, right? Let's take the half that we should have paid the first time. Let's take another half so they'll know we weren't stealing it. And then I love verse 11. And put a gift basket together. That's basically what he says. Put a gift basket. So just in case you, they've been sending fruit baskets to people for a long time, apparently. So this is what he does. Let's put a fruit. And I find this basket ironic on a couple levels. First and foremost, if you look at what's being included, it's some of the same things that were back when in 37 that the traders were trading in who they sold Joseph to. So that's irony, number one. Number two is you are putting a cute little gift basket together for the second most powerful man in all of their region. And that just seems extremely desperate to me. And I think this family is at a point of desperation. And I think you see that in verse 14 in Israel's response. When he says, May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your brother and Benjamin to you. And as for me, if I am deprived of my sons, I am deprived. This man who was so cunning, this man who stole and lied to get the blessing of his father, he now presents himself as a man who has been beaten. A man that has come to the very end of himself. And so what does he do when he's come to the very end of himself? He does the only right thing he can do. He doesn't try to fix it. He doesn't try to finagle something. He doesn't try to just love himself more. No, he cries out to the God who has always been with him. Now look, this isn't a scholarly prayer. It's not even a prayer of someone who's walking with the Lord on a mountaintop. It's a prayer of desperation. But it's a humble prayer before God to show mercy to his sons. And this humbled man can only then speak truth when he says, if I'm deprived of my sons, so be it. Which, let's be honest, that's how it always was to begin with. Jacob was never actually had the power to protect his sons. No more than he had the opportunity or the power to make sure his family had enough to eat. God was always in control. And at some points when we get to the end of ourselves, we actually recognize that reality. So Jacob comes to the end of himself, cries out to the Lord that he would show mercy to his sons. So in verse 15, the men take the amount. They go back to Egypt. They take Benjamin with them. They go down there before Joseph. And Joseph, he, he, you can tell that he's been watching for them. Right? And I don't know how long it's been. It's obviously been a while. They've eaten all the grain that they bought. But you get this idea that Joseph's been watching for them. And they come back and he has a plan. And he tells his steward, hey, take these guys. Take them to my house. We're going to have lunch together. Again, Joseph continuing to be seen as a man of blessing to these people, but that's not how they see it. These brothers still can't see the good hand of God. They can't see the blessings that they're about to receive. So instead, they're terrified because of their guilt. They concoct in their minds what this Egyptian official intends to do, that he intends to harm them, as if somehow he couldn't have done that already. They're convinced he's going to take them to be slaves. I mean, isn't that the funny thing about guilt? When we are are living in our sin, we're assuming the attentions of other people based on how we would have responded in that situation. Instead, Joseph is the one whom God is going to use to bless this family, but their view of God right now is so jaded by their own sin that they can't see it. So they come up with a plan. Well, before we go in the house, let's go and talk to his steward and so in the entrance way of the house they go and they talk to the steward of the house they say well hold on let's just clear up something real quick so last time when we got home we realized we had all the money we don't know how that got there we didn't mean to we brought it back we want you to know we're honest and man i love the steward's response his response to these brothers must have been like a soothing balm on their hearts He tells them, no, 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 it was God, again, your God. It was your God who gave the money back. Joseph's gift originally was meant to be seen as a blessing to them, not a curse. In fact, in a few chapters from now, when he gives them land to to live in, we are to understand that this is not simply a gift from Joseph to them, it's a gift of God to his people. And the steward here is helping these brothers start to see that. What we've been studying in the book of Genesis, what we've been seeing, what these men are supposed to remember, is that one of the main themes of our book is that those who are God's people, he is for. And it's, look, he knows everything about you. He knows all the bad that they have done. We've seen over and over in our story of Genesis, all the people who should have known what right to do continue to fail. God knows all of their failures and loves them anyway. These men needed to remember that. So they go into the house, they wash up, they wait for Joseph to return. When Joseph came home, they presented their gifts to him. They bowed down before him. He inquires of their father, how is he doing? They say he's well and they bow down again. Now look, that bowing down, it says, and they they bowed down to him and they paid homage to him in verse 28. You can understand that first bow down to be a polite cultural but this one is different. This is where all 11 brothers, they kneel down in a, in a position of submission to this earthly superior. And at this point, it's the fulfillment of Genesis 37, the first dream Joseph had, where all 11 brothers are bowed down before him. God has been in control of this story the entire time. It's so now when Joseph sees Benjamin up close and personal for the first time in 20 years. He's overcome. He speaks a word of blessing over him. May God be gracious to you. But he's overwhelmed with, with emotion and he runs off so they don't see him crying. For he's not yet ready to disclose himself to them. But I, I, really, I really think the translation in, uh, from the ESV actually hits home a little bit better in verse 30. Because in verse 30 you would get, Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. Now that word compassion, the word underneath that in the Hebrew is the same word for mercy that Jacob prayed for. And so what you have right here is is the mercy, the prayer that, that Jacob prayed for has been answered as Joseph's compassion is extended to Benjamin and his brothers. Mercy extended. And at the very end of our story, at least today's portion of it, we get this really interesting lunch. So Joseph returns, he tells them to serve the food and they all sit down and Joseph is sitting over here away from his brothers because Egyptians and Hebrews don't eat together culturally and he still is not ready to show them who he is. And on top of that, he seats them in birth order. Now with 11 brothers, that's not an easy task to do. And it's meant to grab their attention that again, God is at work in this story They don't know how, they don't know why he's at work, but they know he's up to something. And then the very last verse we see is Benjamin, the last one to be fed, is giving five times as much food as the rest of them. I think Joseph loved his full brother, no doubt, but I think there's more going on here. Remember, he's still trying to determine who these brothers are. Are they still the same men they were? Have they changed? Does, envy, uh, does the envy that at one point ruled their hearts still exist? Will they still respond in jealousy to the favorite son in front of the other brothers while they're treated differently? Will they pass the test? Does jealousy still rule their hearts? And I think you see in the very last line, we're to understand that they passed the test. We don't see jealousy, we said see rejoicing. By the way, so much rejoicing, they must have gone well into the day, maybe into the night, because depending on your translation, it says they were drunk together. So they were at it for a while. There's rejoicing. And I find it interesting, and I find it to be true, that the Lord often tests our hearts when others are blessed. Right, the Bible tells us in Romans 12 that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep with those who weep. I find it easier, to be honest, sometimes to easier to weep with someone who's weeping than rejoice with someone who's rejoicing. When God blesses someone else's life in the way that we would wish our lives would be blessed, are you able to rejoice with them? Or are you so far on your own throne of your own heart that all that comes out is envy and jealousy? Look, our story between Joseph and these brothers doesn't conclude today. We don't see the full reconciliation until next week. So come back. But on top of that, what we can already see is that the blessings that the Lord had desired to give his people, he's already starting to give them. The blessing of the money returned to them. The, blessed, the reunion of Simeon that Joseph actually kept safe in the prison. Having a meal with the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And so many more blessings that would come in the later chapters. The amount of undeserved mercy that these brothers are shown is incredible. They deserved retribution, right? That's what they deserved. They deserved to be locked away much longer than the three days Joseph had them in jail. They deserved to starve in Canaan. But that's not what they received. They received mercy. They experienced blessing. And all of it was undeserved. Now look, I want to be careful this morning as we apply their story to our story. I don't want us to draw some incorrect conclusions through this picture. They, these brothers weren't shown mercy. They weren't granted blessings because they had repented enough. They had, they had done enough to make up for the evil that they had done. Well, quite the opposite. There's no way. There's no way they could have made up. There's, there's no way they could have made up for the evil done to Joseph or the 20 years of lying they had done to their father. That's not what the point of this is. And yet what's also equally true is that God loves them too much to leave them in unrepentant sin. These brothers for so many years had lived out of their sinfulness. Some of them making, if you look back over the last few chapters, right? some of them making some pretty awful decisions. No, 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 it is a grace of God that he brought them to the point of breaking, bringing it into a place where now spiritually they were ready to be healed, and that restoration could take place. I told you at the very beginning that the takeaway for our story today is that God's Spirit convicts of sin, so that those who are in Him will repent and receive extravagant blessings. We've been studying in uh, we've been studying First John in our adult equipped class on Sunday mornings that meets before this hour. And We've been looking from the very beginning that the, John is trying to write so that they would know they have right fellowship with God. And, and, and John uses these terms of "in God and "of God," if you are in relationship with him, but you're, what we've also learned that right relationship with God equals life. Right relationship with God equals life. Relationship without God equals death. God desires for you to have life. So if your life is messed up right now, maybe by your own choosing. By your own choices that you've made and the Lord convicting you of sin, maybe even right now this morning, I'd say praise the Lord because the exact same mercy that was offered to these brothers is offered to you today. Confess your sins, repent, and find mercy. Or maybe for you, you're just like, well, it's not that. It, it's just that everything kind of feels wrong. You know, every, everywhere I go, everyone I meet, whatever's being done, it just kind of fails and so maybe you're, you're struggling or maybe you've done this where your reaction is like that of the brothers in which when you respond by shaking your fist at God, say, like, God, what are you doing? Why am I having to walk through this? What are you up to? Why are you doing this to me? Church, I, I, I've been there. I know what it feels like to wonder that if God really did forgive me of my past sins. But the reality of not just what I feel, but what is truth is... The Bible says if you are in Christ, is a responding, yes, your sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Christ came and died so that your sins were put on him and nailed to the cross. If you're in Christ and you're carrying around guilt of unconfessed sin, then confess and repent. For that sin has already been dealt with and the burden of it hung on a tree. You can be freed from past sin. He may have allowed you to walk through difficult times. He allowed you to walk through some heavy trials. But if you're in Christ, he has a plan for you, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that good is what brings life. Because Jesus is life. And not just life for an eternity future, but life right now. Church, there is God-given guilt. It's his spirit working to convict you of sin But that conviction is for your good. Confess and receive undeserved mercy and receive abundant blessings. Pray with me. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that the story of Joseph and his brothers and his father are in this Bible in your words so that we could learn about how magnificent your love is for your people god you know all of our brokenness you know all of our weakness you know all of our faults where we've messed up and you love us anyway in christ god thank you for the story in which joseph stood as your agent to offer mercy to his brothers blessings then and then to come god this morning may we Understand that right now, if your Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin, that it is a good thing that we can respond in faith to Christ, our Savior. And you are faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. God, there are those here probably this morning who are dealing with guilt maybe from past sins ones that, God, they've already confessed to you and they're still living with the shame of, God, I pray right now that they would take hold of the reality that you have forgiven them on the cross and that sin that is confessed is no more in your eyes because it was paid for by Jesus' own blood. God, this morning we thank you that you love us enough to convict us of our sin, that you don't leave us in our brokenness, but that you sent your son into our brokenness so that we could be made right with you. God, we love you. We do thank you for stories like this in your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.